Bibles today to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you've already found 1 Corinthians chapter 2, keep your finger there and hold on to that for just a minute. We're going to come back to that in just a few minutes and we'll take our text verses from there. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 10, we really have a scripture here that introduces the message that I want to preach today. If you could hear the Apostle Paul preach, you might expect that his voice and his message uh, would be eloquent. You would think that the Apostle Paul had perfect elocution. And unlike me, that I sometimes get my words out of place and say the wrong thing, that the Apostle Paul would be absolutely perfect in everything that he said. His message would be captivating. And no matter how long that he decided to preach, that you would sit there with your eyes fastened on him, and you would be intent on hearing every word that Paul had to say. Well, if that's what you think, you really have the wrong idea, because the Scriptures tell us that Paul was not a very dynamic speaker. In the New Testament, we have a description of what people were saying about Paul and what they thought about his preaching. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 10, Paul is saying here, Here's what they say about my preaching. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Now, most of us preachers are... are fairly vain. I mean, we don't like to hear somebody criticize our messages. And if someone says, well, that guy, he couldn't preach his way out of a wet paper bag. Well, that hurts our feelings and that's discouraging and very disheartening. You may remember uh, some time ago, I told you the story about a little boy who was uh, going out of church on Sunday morning. The pastor was there at the door. He was shaking people's hands and this little boy came by and the pastor shook his hand and he noticed that there was something in his hand and it was a, a piece of money. And uh, the pastor asked him, what is that in your hand? And the little boy said, I have some money here, and I'd like you to have it. And the pastor said, well, I don't want to take your money from you. And the little boy said, well, my daddy said that you are the poorest preacher we ever had, and I just want to help you. Well, there's no question about this, that, that Paul may not have been the best speaker around, but he was a person who was mightily used by God. I want to talk to you today in our text from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 about the subject, how to be effective for God. And this is really kind of a follow-up to last week's message where we talked about the kind of people that God uses. God will use people just like you and me. And we're going to talk a little bit today about how you can be effective for God. So if you'd stand with me, please. We're going to read Paul's words from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse number 1. And I, brethren... When I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power." that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, I do ask you that you'd help me as I preach the sermon. We want to learn a little bit about how we can be effective for you. And Lord, we know there are so many people here in our congregation today that are good servants, and they do want to be used. Well, help us to show how we can be used by you and be effective. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
Some people have described the Apostle Paul as someone who had stage fright. Everybody, everybody here know what stage fright is? How many have ever experienced stage fright? Okay. Well, stage fright, you know, is when you've really prepared to, to get up and speak or do something. And when you get, in, get up in front of people and you stand up there, all of a sudden you completely forget what you're going to say. Maybe you've had that happen to you. Uh, someone has said that the, the mind is a, a tremendous organ that God has given us. It, it starts working at the very moment that you're born, and it doesn't stop working until you stand up in front of a crowd to speak to somebody. I remember when I was a child, or when I was younger and I was in school, the, the absolute worst thing that could happen to me on any given day was that I would have to stand up and give an oral report in front of the class. I mean, that absolutely scared me to death. My knees would knock. I would shake all over. I'd get sick to my stomach. My mouth would turn to mush. And I absolutely could not get up in front of people to speak. And as I talk to you today, I I would have to tell you, I am the least likely candidate to do what I'm doing here this morning than anybody sitting in this room. I just could not do it. Well, it's hard for us to imagine that Paul could have been a person who had a tough time speaking. He says in verse number three, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. To really understand why this was such a big deal in Paul's life, you have to consider the people that he was talking to and also the time period in which he lived. You see, Paul lived at a time when Greek oratory was at its zenith. I mean, the Greek people, the the orators in in the Greek part of the world and, and those, those fellows, they could really speak well. They were very well known for being able to stand up and give flowery speeches that really captivated their audiences. And Paul was up against these kinds of people. Demosthenes was a Greek orator, and he actually lived about 300 years before the time of Paul, but he was kind of typical of the kind of people that Paul was up against. And Demosthenes tried to learn how to speak very well. Uh, When he first tried public speaking, he wasn't very good at it. And so he sought out some advice about how he could learn to speak. Well, he, he went to someone who told him that the thing that you need to do is to fill your mouth with rocks, go down to the seashore and speak above the surf as loudly as you can. One by one, take those rocks out. And then when the last rock is gone, you'll be able to speak well. Well, there was one little boy who heard that story about Demosthenes, and someone asked him, well, I wonder how a person becomes a preacher. And he said, well, what you do is you go and you you fill your mouth with marbles, and you go stand in the shower, and you talk as loud as you can, and you take the marbles out one at a time, and when you've lost all your marbles, that's when you become a preacher. Well, the question we have today is, how do you become effective for God? Well, before we start here, I do want to tell you, you don't have to be a preacher in order to be effective for God. Now, if you look here at the end of verse number one, Paul says that he was declaring the testimony of God. And the word declaring there is a word that just simply means to share or to communicate with someone. And everybody here, you don't have to be a preacher, but you can learn how to share and communicate God's word with other people. You can communicate the gospel as you stand up in a Sunday school class. You can do that as you teach Pioneer Club. Uh, You do it when you get up to sing. I'm somebody who preaches from a pulpit, but I would have to tell you that the most effective witness that there is, the most effective people for sharing their testimony and declaring the word of God is not the person who stands behind the pulpit. The most effective person is you. 
The person out there in their job every day, in your neighborhoods, the places that you go and people that you meet, you can learn how to be an effective person in sharing the gospel with those people. You see, you've already established a relationship, relationships that I don't have with the people that you want to reach. And so you are the very best person that God can use to reach someone with the gospel of Christ. Well, these principles that effect, of effectiveness that I want to give you today will, will help you no matter where you serve God. Th- these kinds of things will work in Sunday school. They work in the toddler nursery area. In the adult Sunday school class, it works there. But it also works individually for you when you decide that you're going to share the gospel with someone else. Now, I have a very simple outline for you today, just two main points that I want to cover. And we're going to start with the qualities that you don't need to be effective. There are some things that you just simply do not need to be effective for God. Sometimes we'll go to a member of the church and we'll ask them, would you be willing to help us in the Sunday school? Or would you go and at 6 o'clock on Sunday night, would you come and help us in the Pioneer Club? And people will say, well, I, I don't really think that I can do that. I don't have the qualities. I don't have the qualifications that it takes to be used in, in service that way. And there are, of course, some qualifications that you need to teach and to have a part of the ministry. Uh, we don't ask people to teach who aren't good examples before other people. We wouldn't ask somebody to teach who won't come to church, obviously. And we would never ask somebody who's not a Christian to teach our children. But usually, when we consider a person that we're going to ask to teach, we've already talked about the qualifications. We got those kinds of things out of the way. And we've already determined that this is a person that we do believe can be useful to the church in some particular service. But the thing that stops most people is not whether they come to church and whether they have those kinds of qualities. They simply think that they are inadequate to do the job as a Christian, and they think that its service to God in the church requires much more than they're able to give. And so there are some false impressions that people have about whether they can be used in God's service. Now, today, first of all, we're going to rule out some of the excuses that people use for not being used in God's service. So if you have one of these excuses, we're going to try to get rid of these things today. The first excuse that many people use is that I am not a super speaker. And I think that Paul effectively rules out that excuse in verses 1 and 4. He says, I came not with excellency of speech. That's in verse number 1. My speech was not with enticing words. That's what he says in verse number 4. Now, do you remember a couple of weeks ago, we were, we were talking about Apollos and, and how that Apollos was the golden-throated orator? He, he was a preacher and, and, and worked in the Corinthian church for a while. Well, if you heard Apollos preach and then you heard Paul preach, you would say, well, you know, Paul, the message that you deliver, that, that's a pretty good message. You did a, a fairly good job there. But I really like Apollos better. I mean, Apollos really rings my bell. Usually when people are talking about like that, what they mean is that preacher really entertains me. And it doesn't matter if what he has to say lasts until you get on the other side of that curtain and out the door. It's just the fact that it feels good when you hear it. And you just like to hear what he has to say. But Paul's effectiveness for God was not that he could speak well. And we're going to get into that a little bit more in just a few minutes. But he didn't have to be one of these great Greek orators. He didn't have to speak well in order to be used by God. 
Now, when you speak, you need to remember the KISS method. K-I-S-S. Keep it short and simple. My wife always tells me that sermons are like biscuits. Both are improved with a little bit of shortening. And she tells me that all the time. (laughs) You don't really have to be an eloquent speaker in order to be remembered. Does anybody here remember who was the main speaker at a dedication of a cemetery in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania in 1863? Do you know who the main speaker was? Anybody? Most people would say Abraham Lincoln, but the main speaker that day was not Abraham Lincoln. It was a man by the name of Edward Everett. He was a great orator at that time, and he gave a Gettysburg address, and maybe sometime you might want to look that up and read what he had to say, but he stood up there, and for two hours he spoke nonstop. And when he was done, all the people applauded because it was a great oratory. Next, Abraham Lincoln got up to speak, and he shared with the people some notes that he'd scribbled on the back of an envelope. His speech was all of 269 words. It took him two minutes to deliver it, and when he was finished, nobody applauded. Which one of those speeches do we remember today? It doesn't have to be the long one. It doesn't have to be the most eloquent. Now, sometimes what we really try to do is we try to make the gospel too complicated. The average preacher speaks about 125 to 150 words a minute with gust up to about 200 and 300 at times. But he speaks about 125 to to 200 uh, to 150 words a minute. So that means that if you get up to speak in a Sunday school class and you talk for 30 minutes, that you'll use about 4,000 words. Well, did you know that the Ten Commandments contain only 319 words? And that's considering all the extras that are thrown in. The, the story of the prodigal son was 507 words. Peter's message on Pentecost that he preached where 3,000 people got saved was 553 words. I remember when we were studying that in the book of Acts, it took me four sermons to explain what Peter said. It took me 16,000 words to say the same thing that Peter said. Now, my wife's already telling me, see, I, you're proving my point. Keep it short and simple. <laughs> Our federal government issued a directive that was 26,000 words about supporting the price of cabbage. Anybody remember that? Probably not. So the longest things are not always the most memorable. So you don't have to, to worry about being a super speaker. All you have to do is just give it simply, and that's when people will get it. And it actually took me more than 500 words to explain that one point in the sermon today. The second excuse that people use is, I am not super smart. Or I don't don't have the intelligence. I don't have the intellect. Well, we go back here to verse number one. And Paul says, it was not my wisdom. And in verse number four, he says, it is not man's wisdom. Preachers a lot of times like to slip in a few big words as they preach. Sometimes that's, you know, to impress people. And again, my wife catches me on that as well, and she complains about that sometimes. I got called on it in the Sunday morning form class about two weeks ago because I used the word eschatological. And it it just seemed logical to me to use the word eschatological at the time. But we really don't have to use those big words. God has given us this directive that we are to feed his sheep and not his giraffes. 
So what you can do, you can put it down here at a little lower level where everybody can eat of this and everybody can understand. You remember when Jesus was asked the question, whom do men say that I am? And I can just imagine Jesus asking that question to some of the brightest theologians today. And he would say to them, whom do you say that I am? And they would say, thou art the everlasting Christological materialization of the interminable Aeonian supreme first causation. And Jesus would say, huh, what's that mean? If you read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you find out that it was a very simple message. It wasn't complicated. Now, Jesus, of course, was a really smart person, smarter than anybody here, but you don't have to be smart to be used by God. And the examples that we have in this church are beyond number. I I couldn't even, (laughs) I don't need to belabor that point. But all of us, we are really simple servants of God. We don't have anything at all to prove. And Paul says that that if you attack this thing, I mean, he said this already, if you attack this thing in your own intelligence, you are a fool anyway. So we learned that in last week's message. Well, the third excuse that people use, I am not a super socializer. But we notice that when Paul came to the people, he didn't come as a back-slapping, extroverted, good-time personality preacher. I mean, he was shaking as a leaf as he came. And remember there in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10, he said, they, they said about him, his bodily presence is weak. And so here you have this four foot eleven guy standing up next to these great Greek orators. He's got that unibrow and his bow legs. He was not on the party list for most of those parties that went on in Corinth. He wasn't on the who's who and the movers and shakers list of people in Corinth. But you don't really need all that stuff. And sometimes those kinds of things are a hindrance to your service to God rather than a help. And you know why? Because there are many preachers who who talk about this. You have those preacher-loving groupies. There are a lot of converts that have been won to men and they haven't been won to Jesus Christ. And they follow the personality along and follow him around. And everything goes really, really well as long as the preacher stays in good favor with the people. They love his personality. But when the preacher's gone, or if he falls, what happens to them? They don't last very long. You know that there are people that travel around from church to church and they're looking for just the right uh, preacher. And, And the determining factor about whether a preacher is a good preacher is not... At least not for them. The determining factor is not the authority and the soundness of the word of God that he preaches. The determining factor is, does he tell interesting stories as he preaches? Does he give a lot of personal anecdotes as he preaches? Or or is he able to tell the latest Leno and Letterman jokes during his sermon? And that's what people are looking for, that kind of personality. And are you aware that even in our Bible colleges today, even in many of our fundamental Bible colleges, that they're teaching young preachers how to string ten stories together with three scriptures, and they call it expository preaching. There are a lot of people that are won by personality. And so there are a lot of preachers, that good preachers, in fact, that lament this, that some of the followers that they have in their churches are not followers of Jesus Christ. They're followers of them. So Paul says you don't really have to be, or the Scriptures point out, you don't have to be a super socializer to be effective for God. Now, you may not want to be as dull as a post, 
But you don't have to be these, that kind of person in order to, to win somebody to Jesus. And if they're won by your personality, then chances are they're not real converts anyway. So you don't need to worry about being the super speaker. You don't have to be super smart. And you don't have to be a super socializer. Well, if it's none of those things, then what is it? How can you be effective for God? Well, let's talk about that next. What you do need to be effective for God. And the number one thing that you need to be effective in God's service is found in verse number two. Paul says, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what do you need to do? Well, well, first of all, you need to emphasize the cross. Now, Paul says, I can't speak eloquently. I'm not a big socializer. I get a little bit wobbly when I stand up to speak. I've got the stage fright going on. But he says, here is the one thing that I want to do. I want to point you to the cross. I want you to know about Jesus Christ and how he was crucified. And that's what you need to do. You need to emphasize the cross. Here in Berean Baptist Church, what do we do when we preach? We emphasize the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. In our Sunday school classes, it's about the cross of Christ. In Pioneer Club, it's about the cross of Christ. When we get up to sing... Uh, as a congregation, when, when individuals get up to sing, somehow, some way, those songs are always going to lead us back to the cross of Jesus Christ. People need to know that Jesus did something for us. He went to that cross and he died. And if Christ did not die in order that I might live, then I don't have any reason to be up here preaching to you today. There's a lot of other things that I could be doing on Sunday morning. But we have to emphasize the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I heard a story recently that, that illustrates the seriousness of this. Why do we really need to speak about the cross? There was a group of people that were in a Baptist church, and they decided they would get together and they would go visit the Mormon tabernacle, and they would hear the Mormon tabernacle choir in Utah. So they took the trip there, and they got into a tour group, and there was a, a bright BYU student that's Brigham Young, Brigham Young University. There was this real bright BYU student. He was the one who was leading this tour. Well, he went through uh, on the tour and he was talking about all the fabulous scenes that were seen in the stained glass windows. He would go around and he'd point out the different things that those uh, stained glass windows depicted. There, there's one there about the birth of Jesus Christ and he explained about that. There are other events in Christ's life, that he talked about those and explained all about them. But he came to one particular stained glass window, and this was one that pictured the crucifixion. And he stood in front of that stained glass window, and he said, we don't make very much of the cross. He didn't say very much about it. We don't make very much of the cross. So let's move on to the burial. Wait just a minute here. What do you mean you don't make much of the cross. Now, the Mormons, they're really nice people, and they make a lot about, talk a lot about family values, and they emphasize those things, but they do not emphasize the cross. They don't talk about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. They don't tell people that Jesus Christ alone is the way of salvation. They call themselves Christians, but they don't make very much of the cross. But we do make much of the cross. We're going to preach about the cross. We've been given two ordinances in the church that emphasize the cross of Jesus Christ. 
God gave us baptism in the church. That speaks about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then he gave us the Lord's Supper. Very specifically, we're told in the scriptures that the Lord's Supper is a memorial of Christ's death. In the Lord's Supper, we have the cups that contain the fruit of the vine. And and that fruit of the vine, that juice that's in there, that represents the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins. We take the bread and we break that bread. And the bread represents the body of Jesus Christ. The body that was broken for us. The body that was beaten. The body that was nailed to the cross. What do you mean that you don't make much of the cross? That's the central focus and the very theme of our message. We have to preach the cross of Christ. Warren Wiersbe made a a great comment about this in his commentary. He talked about in a church where there was a huge stained glass window that was right behind the pulpit. And in this stained glass window, there was the picture of Jesus. Now, I don't necessarily advocate that. But in this church, there was a picture of Jesus. On, On this one particular Sunday morning, there was a visiting preacher who came to preach, and he was a man who was much shorter than the pastor. And when he got up to speak, that picture of Jesus was very clearly visible behind him. And there was a little girl in the congregation, and she said, where is that guy who usually talks, and we can't see Jesus? That's a telling thing, isn't it? There's too much preaching today that hides Jesus rather than reveals him. The cross is central to our message. And so Paul says, if I'm going to be known for anything among the Corinthian people, I want to be known for pointing people to the cross. That's the most important thing that you need when you talk to people. You need to emphasize the cross. Well, what else do I need to be effective? Well, next, you need the anointing of the Spirit. Now notice again, verse number four. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now look at that word power. That's the Greek word dunamis. It's the same word from which we get dynamic and the same word from which we get dynamite. And so Paul says, I can't speak eloquently. I'm not a super socializer. I don't rely on Greek's wisdom. I have only one thing that I lean on, and that is the demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. And he says, I don't need all this other stuff anyway, because truth be told, it is God who does this. It's the Holy Spirit who works for me. And so whenever you start to make excuses of why I can't serve God, you just remember who and what all of this is for. This is God's work. And anything that you're trying to do in the energy of your flesh anyway, it all amounts to a big fat zero in God's accounting. What you do for God has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember those long sermons I just talked about? We once had a missionary who came to speak in our church. He came here and he preached for an hour and a half. And he went upside one side of human responsibility, down the other side of human responsibility. He told us that you have to get out there, you have to talk to people, you have to witness to people, or they won't be saved. And for an hour and a half, he preached about this, and not even one time did he ever mention the Holy Spirit. He kept saying, you do it, you do it, you do it, you do it. But the truth of the matter is, if I'm the only one who's doing it, it's not going to get done. It takes the Holy Spirit's power for in order for us to be effective for God. And that's because Jesus said, Without me, ye can do nothing. 
Not without me you can do a little things or a few things. Without me ye can do nothing. But let's wait a minute. To tell the truth, aren't there a lot of things that are being done in churches today? There's a lot of things that are going on. At this very hour that I'm preaching a message to you, all over Ronard Park there are other churches where messages are being preached. Down here a few blocks from us, there will be a, a priest who, say, who says a mass. There will be plenty of prayers that are prayed today. And I'd have to be honest with you, most of what goes on in our churches is not done with the Holy Spirit's power. God has nothing to do with a lot of things that's going on in church today. Now, if you count the numbers of people that go to church, the accounting of the church roles, and if we talk about the collections that are brought in, the amount of money that's brought in, all kinds of things are being done in the name of Jesus Christ. But there's precious few things, precious few things that are done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the truth is, whatever you do for the Lord in the energy of your flesh ends up as double and triple zeros. So what do I mean here then, that that you need the anointing of the Spirit? Well, I don't mean it like a catchphrase like so so many people use today in churches. When you say anointing of the Holy Spirit, the first thing that comes into their minds, oh, I must speak in tongues. There has to be an ecstatic prayer language that I use. And that's the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I'm not speaking about that. In the Old Testament, it talks about how the priest would come and he would anoint the king. And he would anoint him with oil. That oil was the symbol of the Holy Spirit. And that oil poured down over him and covered him. And that's what I'm speaking about. I'm talking about being covered, being enveloped in the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean it like the old Puritan John Flavel spoke about as he wrote the book, The Method of Grace. And he wrote that work about the Holy Spirit and never once did he ever in any place in the book emphasize anything about tongue-talking and miracle gifts. He said nothing about that. But he did end many of his sermons with these words, Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. A person must be spirit controlled. And that's what he was. He was a man who was spirit-filled and his thoughts and actions were spirit-controlled. I read something that John MacArthur said as I was studying this message. He said, Paul saw no place for calculated theatrics and techniques to manipulate responses. Many have responded to an emotional appeal without true knowledge and conviction of God. Paul did not do that kind of preaching. But have you ever noticed the evangelistic technique today? Got started about a little over 100, 150 years ago. The new evangelistic technique that's used today. The big evangelist, he comes to preach. And he has about four or five sermons that he knows really well. And he preaches that wherever he goes. And he's learned how to manipulate people in the invitation that he gives. So he comes to the church and he preaches his message. And if he doesn't have 10 people walking down the aisle every night, he won't be back to that church. But he's got these messages that he uses and he learns how to manipulate. And the anointing that he has are the tactics that he uses in order to get people moving and and get them emotional and get them down the aisles. So he'll preach those four or five sermons. And if he doesn't get a response, well, from this sermon, he throws that sermon out. He's not going to use that sermon anymore. So he preaches again. And if this sermon gets a response, then he puts that into his repertoire and he preaches it over and over and over again. He gets the surefire reactionary sermons that get people emotional and he preaches those night after night in every place. 
I heard about a preacher who, who experienced this, and he learned his lesson about Holy Spirit anointing. He was a young preacher. This was before he became a pastor. And he was traveling the evangelistic circle. He was preaching in youth rallies every night. And he had four or five sermons that he would go to these youth rallies, and he preached those four or five sermons over and over again. Well, one time there was a pastor of a church who called him up and said, I'd like you to come and speak for us, and we're going to have a protracted meeting. And he didn't even know what protracted meant. But he said, well, I'll go. I'll go to the meeting. Well, he went, and he learned very quickly what protracted meant, because this was not a meeting that was going to last three or four nights. This is a meeting that was going to last ten nights. So here he is. He's at the evangelistic meeting. He has four sermons and ten nights to preach. So what's he going to do? Well, he said he learned right then about Holy Spirit anointing. He got down on his knees and he began to pray, Lord, I need some sermons and I need them yesterday. So he has no books. He has no study notes. He has only the Bible. He got down on his knees to pray and he said God gave him the messages that he needed. And he said, those were the most powerful messages that I ever preached. And you know why? It's because the Holy Spirit can take what we have, what little that we have, he can turn that into something great. And we don't have to have all these all this preparation and all that stuff that goes into it. The Holy Spirit can give us the message. You don't need a 10-point polemic every time that you stand up to speak. The Holy Spirit can provide you with what you need to say. Now, I challenge you to find out today that there is no limit to what God can do. You may have your excuses. You say, I can't do it. You'll find out that you are limited and I am limited, but there's no limit to what God can do. I can't save anybody. I can't convince anybody about hell. I can tell sad stories that that move people to tears. I can tell scary stories that motivate people to fear, but I can never convict a heart. The Holy Spirit has to do that. He has to convert. So whatever ministry that you're in, you need to learn this. What you do in your energy and in your flesh is a big fat zero without the Holy Spirit's power. So what do you need? You need to emphasize the cross and you need to the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now here's the third thing that will make you effective for God. Number three, you need to trust in God's power. These first four verses say, I can't speak well. I don't come in the intelligence of men. I have fear and trembling. I've got stage fright. But I don't depend on that anyway. Here is what does it. And he says it in verse number five. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There have been some rousing speeches that have been made by men. You might be like a general who would stand up in in front of his troops and he tried to encourage them. Motivate them, like Mel Gibson and Braveheart. Aye, man, ye fight for Scotland. You could say that and try to motivate somebody. Remember the movie Newt Rockney? When, when Newt Rockney was the coach of Notre Dame, he had a star player by the name of George Gipp. And George Gipp became very seriously ill, but he said something to Newt Rockney. He said, I want you to promise me, coach, that when the team is not doing well and, and it looks like they're going to lose and all the breaks are going against them, Just tell them to go out there and win just one for the Gipper. Remember Ronald Reagan played that part of George Gipp in the film Newt Rockney? Well, there was this line in that film. It said, and the last thing he said to me, Rock, 
He said, sometime when the team is up against it and the brakes are beating the boys, tell them to go out there with all they've got and win just one for the Gipper. That was one of Ronald Reagan's most famous lines. You can give motivating speeches, but those kinds of speeches do not last for eternity. The only thing that lasts for eternity is what you do in the power of God. If you've heard much preaching today and been to very many places, you'll find out that preaching today is pretty much like selling used cars. I mean, you've got to have the slick vehicle. You've got to have the emotional thing going on in order to get people down the aisles, get people up on an emotional high. But you know what happens? You get about five miles down the road with all of your emotions and the old car quits on you. And you go and you look under the hood and you find out that the engine is blown. You can only go so far on emotion. Most of you probably heard of the evangelist Billy Sunday. How many of you ever heard of him? Most places and fundamental circles, uh, Billy Sunday is right up there next to God and D.L. Moody. But we talk about uh, Billy Sunday and what Billy Sunday was most known for was his histrionics. You read up on this a little bit, you'll find out that, that uh, Billy Sunday... His presentations were built around the emotional appeal. Now, he was a a former baseball player. He was a very athletic person. And sometimes he would pull some really crazy stunts on the platform. He would turn backflips off the platform. He'd run from one side to the other. He'd get down on his knees. He'd pound the pulpit. He'd scream. He'd get everybody emotionally involved in this. All the people really liked Billy Sunday's preaching. And it said that Billy Sunday... During his preaching, there were over one million people that came down the aisles during his ministry. Have you ever investigated, though, the fruits of his ministry? Where are there any lasting effects? If you read about Billy Sunday, you'll find out that he had a very mixed-up theology. He didn't understand about original sin. And for goodness sakes, folks, he didn't even understand justification by faith. You can't be sloppy with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can get people on the emotional eye. You get those people down the aisle. You can manipulate the gospel. And that's done in many, many churches today. But whenever you preach the cross, you have to use the truth of God's word. It's not in our power to persuade and to convince people. Only God's power will convict. Now, do you see what Paul means here? You, you can throw out all of this other stuff because Paul didn't have it. He didn't need it and neither do you. Well, let me close here then with the last statement that we want to talk about today. They won't come if you don't go. In this chapter, Paul has a lot of things to say about man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. In our wisdom, we say, well, well, there must be a better plan of salvation. Surely there's some other thing that we can say that'll bring people to Jesus Christ and they can be saved. And our wisdom says, if we do accept the plan that God has given, then there must be a better way of presentation. There has to be a better way and a more effective way. We need better spokesmen in order to communicate this message because it's so hard to believe. We just need better people to present it. But the thing is, God never expected you to convince anyone. He never said that you have to go pick up the hyper-fundamentalist book on soul winning to learn how, to, how you can be effective for God. What he has done here, he's given us three things 
that you need to be effective. You need to emphasize the cross of Jesus Christ and speak about that. You need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You need God's power, and you need those three things. But you also need one more thing. One more thing, you have to be willing to go. Now, Paul never would have reached the Corinthians with with any kind of wisdom, much less the wisdom of the cross, if he wasn't willing to go. So the question for us today is what excuses are you making? If you're talking about, I don't have the ability, I can't do this, I can't be effective, I don't have the qualifications, you need to simply remember, God is the one who works through you anyway. You don't need these things. All that you need is some availability. You just need to say, God, I'm willing to do what you ask me to do. So today I'm asking you, quit making all of your excuses and learn to be effective for God and then do something for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to bring your word today. Lord, we we have people here that can be used, people who've been making excuses because they just don't think they have the ability, they don't have the qualifications. But Lord, you show us that you're the one who does this work for us. Your power is worked through us when we are available and willing to do what you tell us to do. Would you speak to some heart today? Would you talk to that Christian person today who, who needs to get busy doing something for you in this church? Speak to their heart today, Lord. Draw them close. Make them effective in your service. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.